This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Bob Lane. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Channel 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bob Lane, an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School. And for my day job, I'm a practicing commercial real estate lawyer as a partner at the law firm of Stevens & Lee. We're live noon at East, noon Eastern every Friday, followed by Behind the Markets at 1 p.m. Eastern. As always, you can access past shows via our on-demand feature. If you're listening between 12 noon and 1 p.m. Eastern time on Friday, April 13th, an auspicious day, we're live in the studio for your questions, so please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you're listening at any other time or day, please email your questions and comments to me at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and I'll be happy to address them on my next show or by an email response. So again, if you have a question or you want to join our conversation or share an experience uh, during today's discussion on Friday, April 13th, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And the email is businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and I'm afraid to say it, but remember to follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111. My guest today, who's a return guest, has been very popular over, over time uh, here in the studio, is Steve Gartner. Steve's the executive vice president of CBRE's Retail Services Division. Uh, you, most of you know that CBRE is the largest global real estate uh, firm uh, in the world. Uh, Steve leads their retail brokerage platform throughout the region, driving growth, creating cohesive and collaborative service and, offer, and offerings for retail clients. Steve's entire professional career has been dedicated to the commercial real estate industry. He's going to tell us a lot more about his background. Uh, but prior to joining CBRE in 2014, Steve was the president of Metro Commercial Real Estate, which was one of the foremost uh, retail regional retail companies specializing just in retail until he was uh, dragged away to uh, this global company, CBRE. So he's going to tell us a lot more about that. Um, I will say one thing. He's the past chair of the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, which is the regional chapter of the International Council of Shopping Centers, ICSC, which is the largest uh, trade association for re, uh, real real estate generally and, and for retail specifically. So with no further ado, let me uh, welcome you, Steve. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing real well here in Philadelphia where we're broadcast from. It's 80 degrees and now finally we're getting spring, you know, in mid-April. It is gorgeous. Flowers are blooming here on Locust Walk here at Wharton and it's great to sit in with you again. And when you were talking about CBRE and size, I went from a small regional um, firm, limited service firm. That's kind of the, the parlance of, uh, of firms. You know, you see that in law, firms that maybe have a, a certain uh, area of expertise. Yeah, small boutiques versus yeah, huge. Yeah, but, uh, you know, yeah. boutique's kind of a complimentary thing. And, you know, what's the opposite of a boutique is, you know, Walmart. Well, that's – it's really <laughs> – it's really um, what we're finding in the commercial real estate um, – service sector and we're the only um i believe we're the only fortune 500 um commercial real estate firm i forget where our ranking is somewhere 
you know, above 250. Um, we're like a $13 billion firm. Um, I know, and I was in, I had my business, as some of my listeners may remember, in China for two and a half years. And who did I work with over there with CBRE? They're everywhere. We are Huge. in 111 countries. This is not an, a, a commercial for us, but it's about what's going on in the in the commercial real estate space. Is um, CBRE does about 24 different and distinct things. And one of those 24 is brokerage. Well, most people think of us as a real estate brokerage firm. The, uh, the vast majority of, not the vast majority, but the majority of our revenue and our friendly crosstown rivals that come up, JLL, Cushman and Wakefield, um, but CBRE's, you know, has a much bigger, bigger scale, um, come from non-contingent or commission revenue. And that's probably a bit of a surprise. So it's- yeah, For our listeners, contingent or commissioned revenue is a typical real estate broker who doesn't get paid unless a deal goes through. And then they take, if it's a, a house sale or something, 6%, if it's a huge billion dollar uh, bill, office building, it may be a much smaller percentage, but that's how it's, it's all conditioned on success. And if they could spend- months working on it um and if it doesn't go through they don't get paid right we um we basically bet with our time and then there's a success fee if you achieve success but there's been a shift over the last several years and maybe more of a decade of providing a vast and deeper array of services to and think of kind of the owners of real estate we call that the investor um but we all think somebody that owns an office building, owns a shopping center, owns an apartment house, uh, or owns some form of commercial real estate, and then the user of the real estate. Um, in residential real estate, you would call that buyer broker, but we actually call that occupier. So it could be a large, um, a large corporation um, in which we do lots of different things for them other than um, lease their building, sell their building, um, provide all sorts of advisory services. We run real estate. So, for example, um, when I was, uh, for many, many years, many of my listeners know, I was at Morgan Lewis, which is one of the largest firms in the, in the world, certainly one of the largest in the United States, and headed their global real estate practice. And we have offices all over the world. We needed a real estate company like CBRE to analyze our leases, if we're acquiring another law firm, to uh, look at their leases, look at the, you know, what are our options in those cities. So the, the analytics, the logistics, so, uh, the so property for, management. So, you're a, so yeah. a, big, a big international law firm is a services firm. They tend not to have warehouses or they don't have manufacturing facilities, but they occupy lots of office space in lots of places. So if you think of the four legs of a full-service commercial real estate provider, build it, pay for it, market it, run it, and then we sell it to somebody and we do it over again for the next person, but build it. So for a large law firm, we build out office space all so over the world. Construction management. We do, we do construction man management. The fancy word for that is project management, management or PM. Everybody has their acronyms, and I always have to realize, are these CBRE acronyms or are they industry acron acronyms? Pay for it in finance. So a firm like ours, we have a very large debt and structured finance practice. The world would call that a mortgage brokerage firm, but we place debt. We find money. We also do equity. Uh, we have an investment bank. So the money part of it, um, market it. 
Well, that's the traditional brokerage function, hang a sign, field calls, prospect, cold call, solicit, the marketing function, typical of what you see, and then the running of the real estate. So for large Fortune 500 companies, and we touch about 90% of the Fortune 500 companies, it could be cutting the grass at, at the world headquarters. It could be managing the, the guts, the, the dirty part of real estate, boiler rooms and things like that, um, and the financial running of a, of a building. And so those are the four legs, and, and it took me a long time. I think it was when I came in and spoke to one of your classes here at Wharton to coalesce uh, Bring the all that functions together. of that. Yeah, and and for our listeners, unless they think that this is just a commercial for CBRE, which which of, of course all my guests are, we want to you know understand their companies. But but the, the takeaway is, and Steve would be the first to say this, is that of the major global real estate or national and global real estate firms, and, and Steve mentioned a couple with Cushman Wakefield, JLL, Newmark Knight, you know, and there and there's many others, uh, smaller regional ones. I hope we haven't let out left out somebody important, but but they're all important. Uh, is that they're not just your typical broker that most people think of from their house or their leasing experience that you can get full service um, and uh, so people in the real estate industry who are a lot of our in are, a lot of our listeners are just consumers not just but they're consumers who are interested in learning or they're interested in the situation or they're buying homes or small businesses but others are in the business um, and uh, so uh, the business lesson yeah. from that is we've actually even changed what we call our brokers in our firm. We have about 3,000 in North America. It's a lot of brokers. Okay, but I'm waiting for this one. It's advisory and transaction specialists. And it is to change our thinking and how we talk to our clients is to lead with advisory, lead with advice, lead with counsel, much as you do in, in the legal profession. So I think that that's how a lot of uh, businesses can and should look at themselves if you're an accounting firm or you're any professional service provider, your small business is is lead with advice and counsel yeah. before we think immediately about the transaction. And I think, yeah, that seems sometimes like a waste or how do I make money doing that? How do I monetize advice? Um, well, either, you know, well, you, you have to figure out a way. But if you're a shopkeeper and somebody comes in, and I think we all see where um, a good shop, a bad, let's go with the bad shopkeeper just sells you things. Here it is. Here's the price. A good shopkeeper um, engages you, engages in what you're looking for, engages in the problems and the opportunities and the situation that they can help satisfy. And, and I so think you that's, came a, in that's advice. To buy this uh, you, you know, hose or, or, or for, your, for your garden. Uh, but you know what? I think this one is really might, you know, might be better for you. This I think you just product. need a watering can. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but but meaning you're right. Whatever it is, if you're getting good advice and counsel from whoever your provider is, whether it's goods or services, whether it's medical law, brokerage, the shopkeeper, um, you're going to feel a lot more loyalty to that person. You're going to get a lot more value out of it. It's not just the it's product. It's also more fun as the provider. Yeah. I mean, you and I, we've been doing our respective fields for quite some time, and we get much more satisfaction when we are able to give sound advice that has a positive outcome. 
it yeah. gets us up and out of bed every day. Well, actually, this this uh, beginning of our show has been terrific to get a good sense not only of what you do, but also what that industry provides uh, for our listeners. It's a good uh, foundation for what we're going to get into. Uh, but let me just welcome any new listeners who have joined us since the top of the hour when we started. You're listening to Business Radio Channel 111, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Bob Lane, an adjunct professor teaching real estate law and transactions here at the Wharton School by night. And my day job is I'm a commercial real estate lawyer practicing as a partner at the law firm of Stevens and Lee for now 40 years. My birthday was just uh, earlier uh, this week. So uh, I'm now uh, not celebrating the birthday so much, but my my long tooth. You started era, when you were four. I did. It was a, Actually, it was four and a half. But um, in any event, if you're listening on Friday the 13th between 12 noon and 1 p.m., we're live in the studio for your questions. So please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We'd welcome your questions, your comments, your experiences. As we're talking with Steve Gartner, one of the foremost retail experts, uh, one of the foremost in the United States. I say that without hesitation. Certainly the number one guy here in this area. Um, who is uh, the executive vice president of CBRE. We're just talking about CBRE and all the the services that uh, firms like CBRE provide. But now we're going to turn to your real expertise, um, which is retail. And uh, I know we're both going to be going out uh, next month to the largest uh, conference on retail uh, every year, the ICSC, which stands for the International Council of Shopping Centers. It's the largest trade association uh, in real estate generally and certainly for retail. Um, and uh, everybody, who's anybody who's out there, it's like 30,000, 40,000 people at least. Usually, yes. Um, in, in Las Vegas. Um, and we typically go out along with many thousands of our closest friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really a, a, be a very interesting time with everything that's going on in retail. So my question for you, Steve, is first, what is going on with retail? And my second question is, what the hell is going on with retail? <laughs> so um, yes, we live in interesting times, but let's try to add a little uh, burnishment to what it means to be interesting. I wish it was a little less interesting, frankly. Uh, we... we um, we read about a few retail bankruptcies, but that happens every year. My gosh, Bob. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. how long have we been seeing a, a year or two that go by that uh, there's a retailer that has gone bankrupt? That's been going on for a very long time. That's survival of the fittest. And yeah. what does it mean to be the fittest in retailing? So, why it's like they say forest fires are healthy for the forest. Or they thin, they thin the, they thin the, the dead the, wood. Dead wood. Yeah. And um, and why is a real estate guy talking about retail? Well, that's the space I live in 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 the world of commercial real estate. You have people that do office buildings and industrial, but I live in the retail space, and and that has some uniqueness to it because we're one of the few categories of real estate that caters to a customer, a retailer, who then has to cater to a shopper that comes and buys things. So what's changed in the world of retailing? Well, we still buy, you know, Tide and Charmin. It hasn't changed. As I say, we still wash our clothes and and, and, and wipe our behinds, uh, and that hasn't really gone away. What's really changed is how we're getting things, right. and it's really a mode of delivery. So um, supply chain is and and it's it, it is changing so rapidly probably since the last time we've even spoken here is r- the savvy retailers are really embracing how are they getting things to the consumer to the end user are they the winner in that equation and are goods being delivered 
um, to a home? Are they being delivered to a locker? Are they being delivered to a store? Um, and it's really changing all aspects of commercial real estate. You're like, well, I don't get that. What do you mean? So because what's really changing is we're changing how we're living our lives. Consumer culture and consumer economy is a huge, huge part of our economy. After you take out government spending and military spending and social programs, most of the economy is buying goods and services that consumers use, not that businesses use. So um, whether it's apparel or TVs or groceries, which is the biggest part because we all have to eat, uh, every day. Uh, we don't have to buy clothing every day. It's changing all aspects of of how we live and the things we want. So that sounds very ethereal, very well, 40,000 feet high. I'm, I'm going to bring it down to uh, actually gro literally ground level for for a moment. I'm going to challenge you on this because I don't know that this has been much discussed, but I may have, may have missed it. So your your insight, which is excellent, and is certainly uh, I think you know the the leading thought about how the delivery of goods is is being changed radically over these last you know several years, maybe a decade, but not quite. Maybe certainly five six years. And I know that you uh, in your company in your business, you can't mention any retailers' names, but but I can. So so Amazon's the you know the category killer, but there's lots of other internet purchase um, venues and and conduits. And uh, so that's that's one thing that's being that's being changed radically. I know. I'm 66 years old. Uh, my wife's 63, um, about to be 63. Um, and, uh, you know, even we, we get every day, every other day, we get things delivered to our house. And that's what I'm going to talk about getting down to the ground level. The whole world of delivery has not prepared for the volume that would go to mail order or internet getting one thing a month or whatever. And now people are getting one thing every two or three days delivered. The delivery systems are not there yet. I don't know if they're ever going to get there because there's limitations on traffic, on vehicles. You know, the whole drone thing is going to, you know, may work in some parts of the world, but it's not going to work. I live in the city. What ha what's going on in the city, and this is the challenge for you, is to tell me what you think is going to be the reaction to this. UPS, I will mention UPS, FedEx, the Postal Service, um, there may be other delivery companies, but those are the three that are delivering in my center city, Philadelphia, all the time. And this is a problem that all of them are addressing. I'm not going to say one's better than the other. They just will leave something on our doorstep. They'll ring the bell, leave it on the doorstep. We have a sign saying, please, if nobody comes and answers, leave it at the hardware store down the street because they're willing to take packages as part of their service over and above selling a product to the neighborhood, which is very smart. But nevertheless, there's a sign saying do that, but they don't. The guy comes, he's got so many things to deliver in so little time. He comes, he leaves it, and he goes. Invariably, if we're not home to come open the door, it's stolen. And I can't tell you what, how many, what percentage of things that are left on our doorstep we never find. We track it. They say it was left there. We call the company, and of course, they replace it. Um, so that's a, a major cost. So and I then think, the, and then it gets stolen again. And then it gets stolen. So the question is, we have this radical shift towards doing that. Is there going to be a reaction back because the the delivery system is going to have problems? Okay, so let's look at our alternatives because life is about alternatives and which one's the best. Um, choice one, go on to the Best Buy website and order your um, cell phone charger and have it delivered um, in 48 hours to your stoop where it might get stolen. Right. Choice two, go to Best Buy. Well, get in your car. 
drive there, buy it. Well, which one sounds more appealing to do? And that's so eventually there may be a third alternative. And I we have seen online retailers have lockers. That's what. And, yep, yep, yep. and that has become prolific. Uh, you could certainly give the address of your hardware store as the delivery place, um, which is an option and this well, is then they um, would get overwhelmed and well but you've already kind of said go put it over there so yeah. what's really the difference but um whether you your sign says put it at the hardware store it actually goes to the hardware store but let's also think about this mashup and this is why nothing stands by itself is urbanism people want to live in the cities we know that the trend is toward living in urban um you know, not entirely, but the trend lines are going toward urbanism. People want to live in in or near big cities. Well, um, if you're building an apartment building today, you cannot have a building. And if you have an old building, you are functionally obsolete. If you do not have a large package room, if you do not have a package room that is available 24-7 because people don't get home in time what, for the package master. That is so spot on. When I, I grew up in New York City in an apartment building, mm-hmm. and there was a package room. Of course, this is you know 50 years mm-hmm. ago. And uh, the package room was about as big as the studio, if that. And it had a, de- a desk. And for, for those the, listening, for this is not the no, uh, ESPN is, studios. Yeah, this is two fours. This is like eight by eight. <laughs> yes. You know, this is right. Um, and uh, now that wouldn't even begin to accommodate an apartment building's uh, packages. Let, let me take it further. Not just the volume of packages. People are having furniture delivered to their oh. home. People, I work in, in an office setting. We have several offices that I that I platoon around, and I will see pa- people get packages delivered to their workplace. Well, that somewhat defeats the purpose, because then you have to get it from your workplace home, but there's always somebody at your workplace more than there is at your home at your stoop. Uh, let's take it one step further. You have an apartment house with a large package room. You have to have accommodation for refrigeration today to stay current because you're having um, perishable food delivered during certain hours. Now, luxury buildings or near luxury buildings will actually go and put it up in your apartment for you, uh, perhaps, or put it in your refrigerator. So, you know, all of this has to do with retail, but it really has to do with how we're choosing to live in 2018, which is that instant level of gratification. There's a phrase that they call the endless aisle. So you're looking for that cell phone charger and you go online. You're rarely disappointed when you're online. However, when you walk in the store, it may be out of stock. You may not find somebody to help you. The retailers that are thriving today are the ones where there is high levels of service, where there's a a purchase that needs a high level of service, where it's not a commodity. I needed a cell phone. I keep using the cell phone charger example because I just bought one and I bought it online because, you know, there it is, one in the morning. And it's small. And and uh, there it shows up. But I find it fascinating that Sunday evening driving around the suburbs is – in, in that white van is somebody dropping off my cell phone charger and um, with its free delivery. Well, you've, you've raised a, a really good point, incidentally, there, which is what, what is going to be with the bricks and mortar stores? What's the recipe for their success? You talked about service. So are they going to become more like concierge? Are they going to become more like places where you're going to go? Um, you know, urban, urban outfitters and, uh, you know, they, they bought, uh, you know, 
a pizza in that, a food chain. Um, Vetri Pizza is known here in Philadelphia, but it's going to be uh, laid out throughout the country. Are they going to have places where people are going to want to go? Like like the Borders, which is no longer in business, but Barnes & Nobles, where you have the coffee shops. People want to go there, congregate, uh, have, have a snack, talk to each other, read a book. Oh, I like this book. I'll buy the book. Um, you know, it's a way of attracting consumers who could buy books on Amazon. So um, we're seeing... Um, which retailers thrive, or at least categorically the ones that thrive, are the ones that really don't sell much online. And, and that's still in the world of apparel. And the, the customer still likes that surprise and feeling merchandise and trying on for size. We tend to buy things online that we know already. Right. So a repetitive purchase uh, or something that we already know. But there's no sense of discovery. And Americans still do like to shop. Americans still like to walk around on a beautiful day like it is here today and stroll stores and walk in and try on merchandise. So if you were to go on Walnut Street or Michigan Avenue or Madison Avenue, you'll see lots of busy stores. Um, and you'll see lots that are not that busy. Um, so there's still consumers that are out there and they're still shopping and they're still making the activity of shopping an activity in and of itself. The retailers that also thrive are what we call the treasure hunt retailers or where there's a level of, of surprise. Some of them are discounters, whether it's TJ Maxx, Marshalls, Ross, where um, theirs are not purchases that are made online. They're not deep discounters. There are people that are buying high fashion in these stores at, 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 at available prices. But um, as one of them used as their slogan, it's never, ever the same place twice. And that was a very telling uh, slogan because that is it in which you could go there and find something new every day. Um, grocery chains are, are figuring that out um, in which having and, and a lot of this is not new, which is having kiosks inside stores, having right. setups inside stores, having samples at you know, at Holt Foods or Wegmans or wherever you, you may be and somebody giving that. That's my, been going on for, my, for decades and decades. My, I grew up in the city. So for me, uh, when I got older and, and uh, going to a suburban mall was a new experience. I was like, you know, as, a, as an adult, I was like a kid in the candy store. And we'd, she'd take me to Costco's and they would have all these samples and she'd go shopping and I'd go walking around getting a little you know, piece of pizza and a little uh, piece of whatever, yeah. you know. They made this. no money off of you. They made no money. Well, yeah. that's not they, true. Uh, we would spend... And then you, uh, brought, you bought the pallet of mayonnaise and, yes, and the, you know, that'll last you a uh, hundred years. Forever, yeah. 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 Um, so so what's, what's also happening with online retail uh, and, and this is, you know, I like to bring fresh news, and this isn't exactly fresh news, but it's things that we haven't spoken about, is data. This yeah. is when people's eyes glaze over. Doesn't that sound awful and boring to talk about data, Bob? But we're going to make it the most exciting topic you can imagine. Well, this is going to be exciting because everybody's been following Mark Zuckerberg talking before Congress. And again, I know you can't talk about specific companies. But you know what? Actually, I, I just I just looked up and we have a caller that's been patiently waiting from uh, during our break. So I think we're going to take Andy from Connecticut first before we get into data. So we're going to keep people listening uh, just a little bit longer. Andy, welcome to the Real Estate Hour. Thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call. So I understand you have a question. Uh, well, I'll let you phrase it. Yeah, sure. So I'm a real estate broker myself. I have uh, my broker's license. Um, I also have a general contracting business, and I'm involved in investment real estate. So my question being, I've been working on a business plan for a few years now, and I'm 
interested to know, CBRE, very well known, and you guys service much more than just brokerage. Who would be the equivalent of that service at a residential level? Uh, of a full-service uh, real estate company at the residential level. So yes. go ahead, uh, so, Steve. I know that there's a lot of um, what I would call franchises. You know, yeah, and, and I'm old... not as adept in it, probably no more than any else that's just out there in the world. Um, Berkshire Hathaway is a name that comes to mind, which is uh, Warren Buffett's, uh, uh, one of his companies that he owns and controls. And you see that those full-service residential firms have um, mortgage uh, functions, and they, they tend not to have a construction function because that doesn't really seem to go with um, single-family homeownership. Um uh, but I'm not familiar with one that has kind of all of the food groups under one roof in residential. No, but what, what I would say to Andy, uh, this, Bob speaking, is that I think Steve's absolutely right. You don't have a, a conglomerate real estate company that I know of in that that's at least national in scope. There may be some local ones, uh, regional ones that we just don't know about. But there is a difference. One thing I would uh, mention is that uh, there's – all the brand names that most of us have heard of from Century 21 to Remax to Prudential to uh, Berkshire Hathaway now and there's you know this uh, uh, CB a residential has that been acquired? I, I can't even keep track, but there's a lot. There's a difference, and I'm not going to, you know, talk about anyone specifically. Uh, but there's a difference between those that are really uh, franchises in the sense that you pay a licensing fee to use uh, Remax or whatever it is. It may not even. I don't know Remax's deal, but you use uh, to to get their name on your on your office so that you're one of them. Uh, but really, you're just running your own local brokerage operation um and there's very little oversight you're really just paying for stationary yeah, i mean they give you setup they give you forms they give you process and procedure right. and they do have a some degree of standardization um well what i was gonna say is that the, 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 there's a the different there's a difference so some companies really have a quality control aspect and that you're really part of a national organization even though you might be a separately you know like an independent you know the, the economic arrangements may be different and others are really just a name i i wouldn't comment on which ones are which in my experience uh, but you would know better or you might look into that i guess how i would leave things is um it, this proves that real estate as they have often said is one of the most localized businesses on earth um Kind of as they say, all politics are local. We could also say all real estate is local. And second is you find that the reputation of the individual is often more prominent and outsized than the company that they even work for. So all markets have individuals and names of people that are titans that could really work at any company. Yeah, Andy, I, I gathered that you you preceded your question with with telling us uh, which was impressive that you are in the brokerage area construction investment development yourself so were you looking for a company to affiliate with that had all those or were you looking for a company to uh, use as a service for you yeah so I, I do hang my hat with one of those bigger companies and although i do have my broker's license i am affiliated with one of those and i guess you know, my bigger question where i'm trying to you know peel a couple layers back is which one of these larger franchises truly offers that home service feature? <clears throat> so, for example, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, they're most well-known for being real estate agents. 
Um, there's not, in my opinion, and, and I believe in what you have shared, you know, there's not necessarily a franchise that truly offers a home service. So I guess it's a connection that I'm looking to build, and I'm trying to figure out if there's if there's any sort of way to tie, for example, you know, can you tie an Angie's List service to oh. a real estate franchise so you truly offer an experience for the consumer that doesn't exist in the sense of you call one place for your home service needs. Well, you know, I, I think you're raising a fabulous uh, idea for, for, for a business because I don't know on any, certainly on any national level of any company that does that in the residential space. I do know that some of my students and past students here, I've been doing this now for 10 years, 20 semesters at the Wharton School. Some of the uh, my MBA and, and other Wharton graduates have come to me with ideas for things that are very much like what you're talking about. Usually they're based online. Um, you know, where you can get lots of different services. As Steve mentioned, um, like Berkshire Hathaway has a, a mortgage company that they offer, so that's another service. Um, and I'm sure brokers all over will be able to get inspectors and things like that for home purchases. But what you're suggesting is a full service with the four legs that CBRE has for commercial uh, space and residential space. And frankly, I don't think it exists. If it does on a local level, Maybe that's something you want to pursue. I think it's a great idea and could probably be marketed very effectively, uh, assuming the service is delivered effectively. But sure. thank you, Andy. Thank you so much for that call. That sparked a lot of thought. Uh, listeners, please uh, feel free to call with your questions, experiences, uh, or comments. From a, from a business point of view, Bob, as we sit here at Wharton, um, I think some of those real estate service providers are reluctant to be too many things to too many, you know, and not be very good and very proficient. You've worked at large law firms. I work at a large real estate firm. And, you know, you want to be very good at what you do. You want to be a leader at what you do. And some of those residential real estate firms are really good at that one leg of the school stool, which is marketing of properties, the finance part, and may just not. It, it, I think the lesson learned is, you know, do you, do you want to get out of your swim lane? And if so, you better be really good if you're getting into those other I, Steve, endeavors. Steve, I, I think that's that's really a key point. Uh, it's sort of like what I was thinking in terms of you got to be able to deliver the goods. If you're going to promote yourself as providing a lot of services, you've got to be equally good uh, or certainly fully competent in all those services. Or if you fail in one of those, that you know it's going to bring that down what you're, really, what you're, what you're what really good at. What your core competency yeah. is. But let me give out the phone numbers for anybody who has additional questions or, or comments. You're, uh, if you're listening on Friday, April 13th, we're here live in the studio, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Uh, and uh, now we promised our listeners that we we're going to talk about data, which you warned sounds like it could be pretty dry, and we're not do just not gonna... turn, do not change the station. Right. This commercial is on every station. We <laughs> well, you, it actually is great segue because every time you hit I agree on an app or on a on a page, you are sharing an awful lot of things. Now it's not about you specifically, Bob Lane. So don't worry, they're not seeing, you know, what pages you're looking at or what shopping items you might be pursuing. But the culling and collection of, of mass data um, is where a lot of online retailers are making money. They're making money collecting data and selling it to other users. We all have traffic uh, apps on our phone. 
I won't mention. Um, I guess I can mention Waze. I don't yeah, think they're a client. Okay, Waze. Well, it's free. Well, it's not. It's free. But what's the bargain in trade is that you are giving up where you go, how you go, what time you go. That information gets culled and collected. So and do they know on sold. ways, if, you, if, you, if I program in that I'm going to go on a two-hour trip from here to there, th- th- does that know, if I stop at a McDonald's versus a Burger King for, for you know, drive through do they know that? They'll know whether you went inside or you sat in your car and went through the drive through Wow, will they know what I ordered? Uh, <laughs> they'll know how long it took you to order, very very likely. No kidding. So, yeah. so what's being done, and, and this shouldn't scare people, the, like, where, where's the business ramification of all of this, is if you're a retailer or you're a consumer goods manufacturer, you're Procter & Gamble, what do you want to know? You want to understand your customer. What do they like? What don't they like? What do they want to buy? Major manufacturers, car manufacturers spend billions and billions on R&D because they want to provide the consumer things that they'll buy over things they want. A merchant will say, is it plaids or stripes? Is it pastels or, or primaries? And and what are people's preferences? So the more we understand about consumers' likes and wants and how they um, transact and, and what they buy, um, the better, the more information a retailer can have the more information anybody can have so it used to be we would know about a customer um by where they live they here's they live in the zip code they're you know the average age in the 19103 zip code is i'm making this up 35 years old and the average household income is $111,000 well that just tells you exactly what i said it tells you what the average age is and what the average um income is in in a zip code what if we could really understand that the consumer likes to buy, you know, look at blue and black sneakers online before they buy red or white or whatever. And that and and the amount of data and how many times you'll look at things before you'll buy it or or you won't. How many websites you'll go to before you'll decide to buy something and then you don't. So the so a lot of these firms, yes, they're making money selling you things by driving it to you in that white van in the middle of the night. But where they're also making a lot of money is selling data. Google, we, we met at a conference with their head of big box retailing. I'm like, what does the Google head of big box retailing do? He sells data and advice and counsel and information to retailers about trends, about what consumers want. Let me point out something else that we are seeing in the retail real estate world, and this is rapidly changing, is mass mobile data. Say I have a supermarket with a parking lot in front, and I want to know where are those customers coming from. Okay, how did we do it, Bob? We did it with those key fobs, um, or they asked your zip code when you walked into a store. With mass mobile data, and this has been going on really for a very brief period of time, we can look at that parking field and we geofence it. It's like with electronic dot. No one goes out to the parking lot. It's all I've done seen from- I've people going, oh, no, nobody's the license staying, plates. Oh, right, and, see, and following them home. No, we geofence a parking lot and we see where the cell phones come 
What does geofence mean? It is an it is basically an electronic fence. It's like if you went to um, Google Earth and you could look down from a satellite image, and we would put we we basically put electronic fencing, not like a dog collar, but it's done. It's done. But what are they seeing in the parking lot? I will tell you. Okay. It's fast. It's fascinating. That's a setup question. You will see where those cell phones come from and go to that go to that parking lot. So if I have a supermarket and I have a parking lot in front of it, right. it will show me where the consumers live by where those cell phones go home and sleep at so night. They can follow my cell phone? Yes. And this is not Big Brother. It is done. It's being done right now. I could show you data here in Philadelphia. We did this for several grocery stores, and it shows where the customers are coming from and going to that go to that supermarket. So they can find out what the radius is for the the most shoppers come from a mile radius, 10 mile radius. Well, they might come five five miles in one direction and three in another because because of of a barrier or a road or just culture or it's on your it's on a busy roadway. So we used to guess a lot of this information, a trade area is a phrase used in retailing and in retail real estate frequently. A trade area means what is the area that my trade, my customer, comes from. And it's not rings. It isn't three miles in one direction, three miles in the other. And But, but isn't it better to understand that? So we hear all the time in retailing, who is my customer? So when you come into my class every year, and it's, and it's terrific how you explain this to the uh, uh, incipient Business people of the world of the Wharton Business School, uh, you'll, you'll you'll explain how that's a, a Wharton retailer, word you just used. Yeah, well, you'll 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 explain how a retailer, and you'll you'll mention some names, but I know you can't uh, mention clients on the of yours on the radio. But it could be a pet company, pet store company. It could be a grocery company. It could be a running you know shoe, a sneaker store. It could be a sporting goods store. It could be anything and they're coming and they want to know what is their demographic if they're going to go into a shopping center or a big or regional mall you know who who are the people who shop and how many you know and how big a store should they open there should they be there and this is the data that they're getting well and we spend a lot of time on site selection on where do you locate your store and i'm sure we have a lot of listeners that uh, that may be individual uh, merchants or shopkeepers and they should all ask their ask themselves these two fundamental questions. One, is my customer there in that location? And two, are there enough of them? Well, we do it with our gut. We look around and we say, wow, I'm opening a high-end jewelry store. I want to be around other high-end retailers. I want to be around Tiffany and Gucci and Neiman Marcus because that customer is already there. I don't want to be a pioneer. So there's a different tenant mix in a center that's anchored by a supermarket than there is that's anchored by a say, say a, a, an off-price store versus a high-end store or more stores like Nordstrom's or Neiman Marcus will have a different inline store mix. Is that is that essentially they correct? They typically will because yeah. like attracts like because that customer tends to be similar that shops. But a lot of that's turned on its head. Whereas the value customer that goes to the discounter may very well be carrying a two thousand dollar handbag, and that a lot of those lines, those traditional lines, are blurred. So we now have to understand the consumer much much more. That I'm um, looking out this 
window, picture window, beautiful day here and and watching people in ratty t-shirts and $88 shorts and $200 sneakers walk by. So, um, you know, the consumer shops very differently. Um, and it's not just about things we put on our body. It's about food. It's about grocery. And it's about, um, and it's about using data to better understand um, what our gut may tell us. So in, in a sense, although I think most human beings, certainly most Americans, have an innate sense of privacy and personal space, and our Constitution even reflects a lot of that, the right to privacy. So there is an innate sense of, oh, God, they're, they're watching all this stuff. But on the other hand, they're not watching, as you pointed out, Bob Lane's in information. No. It's just general. They're amassing a lot. And in a way, that's making the provision of goods and services better attuned to what we want. So in a way, it's a, it's a help. It, it's, um, it's what you learn in Econ 101. I mean, and, and that allows pricing. Um, it, it allows goods to be more readily available. It allows the goods you want to be more readily available. I mean, if you go into a, a, a grocery store and it has milk that's 0%, 1%, 2% whole milk, Almond right. milk. Well, if nobody bought almond milk and the store is still stocking almond milk, well, that would be stupid. I mean, you know, and we're paying for that. Well, that's well, being factored into you know into the cost of the goods you know, that are sold. Right? You know, the key to retailing is, and this is as old as the Agora or the Arabian Bazaar. I mean, this has been going on. Is what am I going to sell? How will I price it? And where will I sell it? And that has been going on for 2,000 years when you were selling beans and grains in bins. What am I going to sell? And if you're sitting there with your basket of beans and nobody's buying beans, well, you're probably going to shift to selling something else. Where? How much will I price it at? And where will I do it? And now we're using really good information as opposed to our innate gut. Or just the abject rejection of sitting there and nobody's walking in and buying my stuff. We're now using data to understand much better the wants and needs and the where. Where are people going right. to do this? So, so what's obviously getting a lot of attention um, in the media in this last week or, or so is how that data is used. You know, the whole Facebook and analytics you know issue about you know. So, is that data really just used for its purpose, or is it being used to manipulate? Um, perceptions, elections, things like that. That may be beyond the scope of what you can comment on, but it look the, the, the Facebook the topic is very of the moment right now, and and what is being done with that that data. Um, I think we've always uh, given uh, a degree of information about our preferences, and we've been doing it for a very long time. Every time you walk into a grocery store, and you um, gave your zip code or you swiped your frequent buyer card. Now, here's the fallacy, Bob. And then there's all those telephone calls we get at 8 o'clock at night just after You mean dinner. you have a phone? Where are they calling you? <laughs> They're calling on my cell phone okay. now. Well, that's a problem. But that that's why a lot of the surveying is done, is a lot of the research is done on the customer you already have. So the free, the frequent swipe card is a customer that's already walking into the store. What about the universe of the customer that's not already walking in the store? That's the part that savvy yeah. merchants want to capture. I already have that 12%. How do I get the other 88% of the world to come into my store? But again, it's as old as the hills. It's as old as retailing, which is am I selling things that people want? All right. So, so in our last few minutes, I'm going to ask you the, the $64 question. We're talking about what's as old as the hills. Cast your gaze out the next 
20, 25 years, what's the world going to be? What's going to be different based on all this? How is this going to evolve? Well, you know, I think consumerism is what drives all of this, and it all goes back to how we live. This is not how we buy. This is how we live and how we choose to live our lives. So urbanism, I believe, will continue to grow. We are seeing um, in, in real data people getting married later than ever, um, especially in major coastal uh, and, and major metropolises. They're not getting married. Used to be you got married in your late 20s, you moved to the suburbs, you had some kids, you bought a house, and you filled that house with stuff, and you bought stuff. And the longer that people are choosing to um, stay uh, either unmarried, uh, continue education, it, it, it points to a different level of want and need in consumerism. And I think that's a major trend that we're seeing. Um, you know, are we seeing the reduction of car use? Um, fascinating, we're seeing the reduction of public transit use in exchange for car share. So while we thought public transit ridership in many places would be up, we're actually seeing um, the, 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 shared, um, the shared economy really flourish. Um, I mean, when would five years ago you would have never gotten into a stranger's car and you would have never stayed in a stranger's home on vacation? And yeah. you know, the largest hotel chain in the world is Airbnb. <laughs> that's amazing. And, and but, but with Airbnb, and there'll be obviously that's relatively new and that's going to evolve. There'll be more competition. There'll be more ways of vetting it. There's going to be it's, that's going to grow. The car share, uh, the Uber, Lyft, etc. Self-driving cars. I mean, it, it seems to me that. Things are going to be radically, radically different um, over the next 10 to 25 and, years. And, and municipalities and companies that have very long-range planning um, that plan 10 or 20 years. Airports are the greatest example because of the massive uh, cost and, and ground. Um, how would you like to be in the rental car business? Um, and you're building these massive, and we see these in lots of cities, not necessarily in these big northeast cities, but in Orlando and the Sun Belt, large car rental uh, facilities being built by airport municipalities. I, I just went to L.A. this year and said, uh, you know, it was always you, you landed, you rented a car in L.A. That's what you did. And I thought, you know, this might be a time that I will not rent a car in L.A. Um, because of car share and yeah. finding parking and cost of parking. And, um, you know, I think that there, there's a seismic change in how we do things. And it used to be, well, you drive to the mall and I have to have my car because I need a, a trunk to put my packages in. Well, what if that mall now delivers things to your home? Hopefully not to your stolen stoop, Bob, but um, <laughs> to your hardware store up the street. And, um, well, I don't need that car as a storage chest while I'm at the mall. And I, when you have that conversation with people that, oh, my gosh, in 10 years I might not need a car or there might be autonomous driving – a lot of people are, you know, we're, we're a car economy, but a yeah. lot of people are saying, you know what, that doesn't sound so and, bad. And the new generations, the millennials and the exennials and the, the even yeah. after whatever the next generation is going to be called, um, you know, they're growing up with this, just like those who grew up with computers as opposed to those who grew up with analog. And in real estate, bringing it back to our topic here is if you're building an apartment building or an office building and zoning code would require four parking spaces per thousand feet, 
you may say, wait, why do I have to build a parking garage? Yeah. Well, on that note, with that question, we're going to get down to the end of our hour. So I want to thank our listeners for staying with us and thank my uh, guest, Steve Gartner, the executive vice president of CBRE's Retail Services Division, one of the foremost authorities, as we've seen this hour, in retail industry, retail real estate. I think this has been a very exciting and enlightening hour, Steve. Thanks so much. Sirius XM 111, the Real Estate Hour. Thanks so much. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.